0: Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Audio-Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 172.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau.
0: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 172 you're listening to. My guest today is Mark Needham. That's right. Mix and recording engineer as well as producer with over 40 years of experience in this nutty thing called the music business. Uh, Mark is originally from Eureka, California. That's north of where I'm at here in Lafayette. And eventually he moved to San Francisco and he co-founded the Blue Bear School of Music and and he taught music recording there. And Bay Area folks will know what I'm talking about when I mention the Blue Bear School of Music. He also built a studio called Bear West Recording. And get this, his first client was blues great Taj Mahal. Does that get any crazier than that? Your first client? Really? Amazing. Now, when he was here in San Francisco, he worked with artists such as Cake and Chris Isaac. And it's Chris Isaac, that's the first time I had heard Mark's name. And in 2000, unfortunately for us in the Bay Area, he he left and moved to Los Angeles. Lucky for Los Angeles, of course. That's where his initial projects were Fleetwood Mac's first collection of new material in eight years. That's uh, Say You Will. And he also did uh, the multi-platinum Hot Fuss by the Killers. How about that? And uh, his recent clients include some people you may have heard of, maybe, you know, just, you know, like Imagine Dragons and Shakira and Pink and Dolly Parton, you know, just small names, right? (laughs) So that's right. Well, we had a really great conversation. Mark joined me over a video call. He's a very nice guy, very forthcoming with information, and uh, which is, of course, very helpful. So looking forward to having you hear that. So Mark Needham coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. I'll share my recent uh, purchase with you all. I bought a new MacBook Pro. Actually, I got it refurbished, and that's kind of the crux of this is if you're going to buy a new machine from Apple, obviously, you could buy used from third parties and people like, you know, just people on Craigslist or whatever. But you can also buy from their refurbished and clearance section, which is what I did. It's at the very bottom of the website. It's kind of hard to find. It's very small font. Click on refurbished and clearance, and you can look through all the different choices they have. They have it for everything, for iPads and uh, iPhones and you know MacBook Pros and all that. So I got a machine, saved some money, looks brand new. In fact, I, I can't believe it's refurbished because it literally is looking brand new. It was shrink-wrapped and looked great. So anyways, saved some money on there. Here's a couple things to think about if you're going to get a new machine. Uh, my old machine, of course, Thunderbolt 2. Many of you have it. You know, many of you have Thunderbolt-based systems. Uh, this is Thunderbolt 3. It comes on USB-C, uh, which is, you know, it's faster, many times faster. But uh, to connect all your old stuff, you know, Thunderbolt, USB-C, all that stuff, you're going to have to get some dongles or some kind of, uh, there's a few boxes, a f- few choices out there. And uh, I'll share a couple of those devices that I got in the show notes uh, so you can look into those yourself. Interesting machine. My only complaint really is they took the MagSafe power connector off of it. So I'll include uh, also in the show notes a uh, a particular thing that I got, which is a USB-C MagSafe connector. It kind of recreates that old MagSafe power connector that that they used to do, which I can't believe they removed. Such a brilliant thing that they had on there. So yeah, so check that out. Uh, I'll include that stuff in the show notes. I'll label it clearly so you can figure out what it is I'm talking about. Go to workingclassaudio.com to find that. And uh, while you're at it, uh, if you're online, make sure and stop over to gearsluts.com and check out the sub-forum called Audio Life that we sponsor. A lot of the same topics. And uh, of course, stop on by our friends over at Universal Audio. That's uaudio.com. As I always say, there's always a promo going on over there. Uh, There's always some great videos from WCA alum like Jakir King and Vance Powell. So uh, stop on by there at uaudio.com. Also, uh, we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So follow us there. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, uh, feel free to email me matt at workingclassaudio.com if you have a guest suggestion on the working class audio website there is a form that you can fill out try to think of some people that you might want to have on the show of course exclude yourself there was one person that put themselves on there <laughs> and that's cool i I get it but uh, try to think of others that you really think would bring some great information to the show for others to hear so uh, yeah that's at workingclassaudio.com All right, so I'll quit jibber-jabbering here and uh, sit back, get your coffee, and uh, have a listen here to our friend Mark Needham here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Great to be here. Now, you're originally a Bay Area guy.
1: Originally Northern California, Humboldt County, and then I came to San Francisco in 1970, I guess and was there till almost 2000.
0: First time I heard your name was uh, associated with, of course, Chris Isaac. And also, going back a bit, and some of the former guests on Working Class Audio cited you as as a big influence to them.
1: Matt Kelly. We found Matt Kelly in Guitar Center, and we were in there buying something. We went if you want a job, come on over, you know? So we, we brought him over to High Street and brought him in as an assistant. He was great.
0: And a couple other people had brought you up. And then I remember at some point realizing, wow, Mark left the Bay Area. Oh, no. What does that mean?
1: <laughs> Sometimes in my life, I just like, I, I need a change just to kind of shake things up a bit. And to be the Bay Area had kind of reached, at least for me, it had reached a point where I didn't feel I was progressing. And I was spending a lot of time in LA. I I was working with uh, Lindsey Buckingham down here. And then it sort of transferred into a Fleetwood Mac album. And I'd been down here in a hotel for almost a year and just went What am I doing? You know, (laughs) all the people in the hotel knew me by name and Mark, what's going on? So I went, okay, I think it's time to move and get a house.
0: You know, you're in trouble when the hotel staff knows you by name.
1: Everybody knew my name. Mark, maybe you shouldn't go out tonight. You know, yeah, it was, it was getting to be like having my mom over my shoulder there. So I uh, decided to leave.
0: When you made that decision to leave the Bay Area, and you said you didn't feel like you were progressing. Were you Were you also getting a sense that the music scene wasn't feeding enough uh, clients to you?
1: I, I mean, I still had a lot of work there, but, you know, from 1970 to the end of the 90s, I thought the scene had changed dramatically from when I first started there. and I just found it a little more exciting in L.A. at that time. I mean, I thought of moving to L.A. for many years on and off. You know, I did a lot of work in L.A., but... I like to make kind of broad changes either in how I'm working or, you know, my workflow, where I'm working, something, you know, to kind of shake things up. It's so easy to get stuck in a rut and, you know, you have a lot of work to do it. You know, I, I don't want to start doing stuff the same way every time. Like pulling up templates or, you know, I just tracked this band like this. Let's just do it again, you know?
0: Now, do you feel that your work with Chris Isaac opened the door or was one of the door openers for you to get you noticed by people in L.A. like Lindsey
1: Buckingham? I mean, th- this the work with Chris was was certainly good. I mean, I had done a lot of stuff before that as well. When we came up with Wicked Game, that was, a you know, kind of got my name a little more attention, I think, at that point. But... I'd developed a relationship with Rob Cavallo over the years on different projects that we'd worked on. And Rob was working with Lindsay on a solo record and said, I know this guy, Mark, he needs to come down and work with you. And so he wanted me to help record and mix this record and try to finish it up because it was, it was getting stalled. And, and um, Rob of course had his fingers in a million other pies. So he sent me down to work on a song for Lindsay and that worked out great and Lindsey and I are still working together. We just—he was in here yesterday.
0: Yeah, it seems like you've done a, quite a bit with him. Um, I guess there's a new uh, Christine McVie and, and Lindsey Buckingham record that you worked on.
1: Yeah, they asked me to come over and co-produce that with Lindsey, and he's a great guy to work with. He always thinks outside the box a little bit. I don't think he has a box, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> there, there is there are no walls around here. That band was a really influential part influential in my life and my music, grow, you know, when I was younger. And to me, it was just such an honor and thrill to be able to have to, to invited down the first time to work with Fleetwood and, you know, and be able to work with Lindsey on his solo projects and the Lindsay Christine thing. I that's, mean, that's like one of those dream things, you know, to, to get to work with those guys.
0: Tell me about the transition from the Bay Area to Los Angeles. Was there any kind of point where you were a little intimidated by that change?
1: I was certainly thrown outside my comfort zone. You know, I didn't really know that many people here in Los Angeles. But I kinda had a, my first year or two where I actually I did pretty well. I you know, I started with Lindy, that turned into a Fleetwood Mac record. And I was developing three bands at the same time with some partners of mine from the Bay Area, one of which was The Killers, which when we finally got that sold, it took a long time, but uh, that hot hot bus turned into a big record. And within three years, I, ha- I was doing pretty well here in Los Angeles as well.
0: Yeah, I've talked to others who've made those transitions like San Francisco to Los Angeles. And they always say, yeah, there's always like a two to three year warming period where you kind of get... It, it takes a while to get your feet planted firmly.
1: I have a studio in Nashville as well. I have a duplicate studio there. And I've been there... We're coming up on a year back and forth. You know, again, I just thought I'd try something new and shake things up a bit. So I'm kind of two weeks in Nashville, two weeks here right now.
0: Yeah, Nashville seems to uh, be attracting pretty much everybody.
1: I've worked in, on, in Nashville on and off since 1985, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it's in an interesting transition period right now, just because just there's so many musicians with from, from so many styles of music. You know, from all over the world are locating in Nashville because it's cheap and it's it's a lot cheaper than L.A. and it's a real music hub right now. So, you know, it's like that you just turned fourteen or something. You know, that's so, I mean, that's kind of the feeling I get in Nashville right now, and it's it's a lot of fun. You know, and, yeah. and again, it's kind of just shaking thing shaking things up and getting not making sure I don't get stuck in a rut on how I'm approaching stuff.
0: Uh, For the longest time, I've seen pictures of you in the room that you're in now, which our listeners can't see. This place that you've been mixing in, I've seen it in pure mix videos and photos and interviews. How did you come across this place that you're currently in, which is uh, the only way I could describe it is it it looks like an L.A. mansion.
1: Well, actually, it was 2000. I guess we'd finished the Fleetwood Mac record. The Killers were doing well. And I was working with Fleetwood out in Chatsworth. I don't know if you know where Chatsworth is in Los Angeles. It's the very northern part of the city of LA. And Chatsworth is best known as being the porn capital of the world. (laughs) You know, it's definitely not like being in Hollywood. And I I wanted to move in a little closer to the city center. It's really hot out in Chatsworth too. You know, it's... Probably one of the hotter places in Los Angeles. And I was looking around on, you know, one of the rental websites and I found a, an old 1920s mansion right in Griffith Park. And it was like a 5,800 square foot house, two bedroom house with a big ballroom and, you know, 12 foot ceiling, just this beautiful place on the park. And I rented that and was there to 2007. I bought another house a block up the street in 2007. And about two years ago, I was mixing in first in the downstairs in the ballroom. And then I had one of my assistants take that room and I moved up up a level up to the floor, which was probably the pure mix video. And then Mm -hmm. two years ago, I duplicated that same room on my property. Um, It was up the street. So I kind of just built the same exact same room with those big cherry wood ceilings and you know all those hand cut octagonal insets in the in the ceiling and the beams and just built the same thing here on my property so i've actually been here for two years so they'll the rooms look really similar so there'll be some photos that are that and some that are this room and they don't look a whole lot different Um, but i like I, i get up really early i started or five in the morning, and I love having the French doors that are looking out into the park. You know, I like I like having the light come in; it's great.
0: Are you a bit of a night owl as well?
1: No, no I mean I used to be when I, you know, when I first started for probably the first twenty years, it was the all night sessions. You know, you're leaving the studio and the garbage men are out, and the sun's just coming up. It's like oh, but uh, at some point, I just kind of made a transition and. Just flip my schedule and started getting up at four or five in the morning. And usually I stop at six, depending, you know, if I have projects or if I that are where I'm tracking stuff or producing, sometimes those certainly go later. And if I'm going out to see bands, that's obviously six o'clock to the work. But, but kind of in my life, I'm trying to be done at six and actually hang out at the house, have a little bit of a life.
0: And how does that work for you, the work life balance thing? Cause you seem to, Work quite a bit, from what I understand.
1: If I get up early enough in the morning, my wife would be be asleep anyhow. Until, you know, she doesn't get up at four in the morning, so you know, I, I'm still usually done by six, and we get to hang out, play with the dog. I mean, I still work at least twelve hours a day, six days a week plus.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your journey in Los Angeles and and? your growth there, what are some of the lessons, the good lessons and and the bad lessons that you've learned along the way in developing your career and, and getting to the point where you're at now? What are some of the, the milestones that you've come across?
1: I mean, one thing we try to, I've tried to do in my career is with the band development is, is try not to let the industry steer my career. So, you know, if you get really well known as the Chris Isaac sound, for instance, you know, it's, that's the only kind of stuff you get sent. You know, so we were developing, there was three, again, I said there was three bands, but The Killers being one of them. And then Hot Fuss came out, and all they get is alternative rock stuff for 10 years. Uh, but <laughs> I try to develop other projects uh, so I feel like I could be somewhat at the helm of, of of steering my career. That's one reason I do that, and it just keeps it more interesting. For me, when I what when I come to a new city also I just try to when I came to Los Angeles I just try to record I go out to clubs I just record every band I can because the best way to I think the best way to get word out about what you do is is to do a great project for one band and they talk to other bands and you know not you're not just sitting back waiting for a label to send you the next project because that might be good for a while and then all of a sudden you're you you wake up one morning and your career's over with. I, I mean, I have a lot of friends who I've seen that happen to you know. It's well, what happened? You know, it's so I think you really have to you have to have the initiative to really help steer your career and not let not let necessarily the labels or what the last project, last big project that you did or known for, kind of continue to steer your career. I think you have to help you know. If it's by developing projects or whatever means you can, I think it's good to broaden your horizons and try to steer your career as well.
0: When we talk about band development, that just seems like, and, and cr- please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like in this day and age with the music industry where it's at, that seems hard to do to put together a band and and or help a band and convince a, a label to take take them and have anybody make any money, including the band.
1: <laughs> it, It's difficult um, at best, you know, I I mean, you just have to find really good bands and be able to stick with it. We started working with Imagine Dragons probably three years before they got signed and did 18 songs, I think. And, you know, just rejection after rejection after rejection. And finally, one guy gets it and gives it a shot and you know, my instincts were right on that one, you know, so that was a good project. It's not all of them turn out that way. A lot of times it's rejection, 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 and ends with, you know, dies on the stake with rejection. But any projects that I'm developing, it's something that I really believe in and love, and I'm having fun recording. So, I mean, it's still a win-win for me in some ways, you know.
0: If listeners who are hearing this interview say, wow, wow. Developing bands—that's something I want to do. What is that process like, from a artistic standpoint as well as a uh, a business standpoint?
1: For me, it's really satisfying artistically. You know, to find something that I really like and help try to find what what, what you know the, what, what the band thinks they are, but kind of superimpose that with what I think the band is. Listening to them, it's you know, it's, hopefully mm-hmm. we can find a a place where that melds and becomes something greater than the sum. Business-wise, it's, you know, it's changed so much from even 2003 when we signed The Killers. I mean, it's, it's a whole different playing field now. We're marketing, we have a band from San Diego almost Monday that we're just, just started working with. And, you know, now it's not so much taking something to a label and going, this is great, you should sign it. We have to, you know, we're spending a lot of time on trying to get get stuff picked up on blogs and run up Spotify numbers, and just trying to get those online numbers up, and trying to figure out better ways to do that. At this point, to be able to get that marketing to a point where it's easy for a major label, if we if we want to go that way, to see that this is a really a viable product. It's riskier for me in a lot of ways now, but you know, it's. I mean, the music business has always has been evolving. So yeah, I mean, since the '60s when I first started listening, was you know really listening to music in the early '60s. It's, I mean, it's such a different beast now, but it's still fun. You know, what else would I do with myself? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so when you're developing a band, it's you're not necessarily seeking bands out as necessarily as clients that will pay you. This is more of a everybody's in it and has skin in the game, so as to if the if the project becomes successful, then everybody involved can benefit. Is that? Yeah. I mean,
1: I I know people who do it the the other way that are, you know, are finding bands and having the bands find an investor. And if I'm signing something, I'm usually just, I'm, I'm kind of all in. We're not, I'm not asking them for money We're I'm, I'm all in on it. And it's something I really love and believe in. And I'm covering the development costs. And especially now we're trying to do all of our, most of our promotion or a, you know, 90% of that in-house, you know, it's every time we think we have something figured out, there's like a whole new way to, to try to market things. And it's a process that, you know, my manager, Andrew Brightman and and me and Pauline, my wife, who's kind of helps a lot of that, the promo side, we're just trying to, you know, figure this out, you know, it's kind of like the wild west out there kind of figure out how to promote and sign bands these days
0: well let me shift gears on you for a bit and take you back to living in Northern California and you coming up as a recording professional who were your mentors or did you have a mentor
1: not really I came to down to help start a music school with my guitar teacher when I was sixteen in San Francisco and I started a little recording studio in a in a closet with two microphones and a four input two mixer and this you know i'd i'd always been fascinated and really loved that that part of the process as well and Mm. at some point that kind of became more what i focused my attention on than trying to be the next guitar player or or the the next big rock guitar player because i just knew people who were a lot better than i was and the studio continued to grow I think faster than the music school was and i finally split off from the music school and started my own studio and i never worked as an assistant in a professional studio so like learning from someone else i just i got a book called the audio encyclopedia and i just read it cover to cover three or four times and started figuring it out on my own there were certainly people up there fred cutero you know i I really loved fred Uh, you know there was but I didn't really have a lot of engineers up there that I, you know, I did again. I never worked with anybody, so I just kind of figured stuff out. Convinced people I knew what I was doing. Was Hyde Street
0: was that a, a hub for you?
1: Not, not really. I'd worked at Wally Hyder's before it was Hyde Street. I'd done some work over there. That's how I first met Fred. Um, I actually started a studio called. I had the music school was Blue Bear Walters. Um, School of Music, which is still up up there uh, in San Francisco. I started a studio called Bear West on Fifth and Howard Street, and hmm. David Rubinson was right down the street on Folsom, Fourth and Folsom. And I had Bear West for probably ten years or something. When I I sold my share of that, and I leased a room at Hyde Street for a while, and then. Michael Ward, who owns Hyde Street, was actually one of our student, one of our first students at the music school. So I've had wow. a really long relationship with Michael going back to 1972, I guess, something like that. So, you know, I've, that was an easy place for me to jump back to. After I got rid of Bear West, I probably had eight different studios up in the Bay Area. I was over in East Bay. Uh, For a while, I had a studio in Petaluma, a couple studios in San Francisco. At some point, I kind of made myself, my situation pretty mobile, so I could just put everything in road cases and connectors on the back and drop it wherever I felt comfortable and call it a studio.
0: What are some of the lessons that you learned along the way while in Northern California?
1: I'd started working with this, with a friend of mine, Eric Jacobson who I did uh, the Chris Isaac stuff with. Eric was a pretty well-known producer up there and obviously had an amazing amount of success in his career and all the different projects that I did with Eric. I mean, I certainly learned a lot from him as a producer, just different ways to look at structuring songs and comping vocals. And I mean, I think I learned a lot of lessons from him. I mean, a lot of the lessons I learned since I'd really just started on my own and learned on my own were kind of hard-won lessons, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, what did I just do? Uh, you know, but those kind of learning experiences when you realize that a take has gone or you missed a punch, <laughs> you back back at it, you missed a punch, and this was catastrophic, you know? So you don't forget those lessons. Very quickly, you know. I mean, you, you miss one punch, and the band's freaking out. It's like, oh my god, I can never have that happen again. So, yeah. But, I, but yeah, I mean, actually, I guess back to Minter's, you know, as you would asked earlier. I guess Eric was was pretty influential. And you know, I learned a lot with working with Eric on just different ways to do stuff. Eric was really open to to trying different things. Wicked Game was all was one of the first definitely the first recording i'd ever done i you know i got a digital recorder and and built you know constructed one of the first kind of sampled loop tracks that would have been in the very early days of trying to actually construct the whole thing just by sampling kicks and snares and building that whole that whole track was all built around just sampled kicks and snares you know and, and Eric was really open to that. So I helped, you know, put that Wicked Game Track together. And that had a lot of success. But there was certainly a lot of failures along the way to get to that point. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's hard to, to just pick out one one lesson that was like, oh, my God, why did, why did I do that? You know, I mean, there was a lot of them.
0: What about survival in, in, in those days compared to now? Were you making a living then or were you working other jobs?
1: Uh, I've never worked another job. This is pretty much the only job I've ever had the only job I've ever had. I've never actually had a real job so um, you're my
0: new hero man
1: i, I had this conversation with people, and I guess I don't really even understand what it's like to go out and have to try to work a job i I was hungry a lot of the time, you know, especially in the early days. but I think it's good if you're gonna do something like this to just at some point you just have to cut the umbilical cord and Jump in full time. You have to sink or swim. I'm the kind of guy if I'm gonna do something, I'm all in. I don't really know any other way. But it there was a lot of hungry years. Yeah. And a lot of lessons learned trying to develop bands and then it get signed and you realize you didn't really have a contract and you know all your work's just gone and somebody else takes it over. I mean, I had a lot of those lessons and kind of figure out how to get all my business and paperwork in together. But, you know, I mean, those are those are lessons you you learn. You you, you find out you, you just got screwed and you try not to let it happen again.
0: Mark Needham here on the Working Class Audio podcast. We'll pause from our interview for a sec. I want to tell you about Audio-Technica's new blue-black headphones, which are ATH-M50Xs, but in a blue-black color really beautiful looking headphones. If you're tired of the, the typical old black headphones or maybe you have a pair of red ones or you have, I don't know, maybe you have some other color of headphones and you want something new to add to the collection, well, check these out. These are at uh, audio-technica.com. You can buy them directly off the website. And uh, if you like ATH-M50Xs, then you might just want to pick up a pair of these. And they are limited edition, so uh, get them while you can. That's it. Let's get back to it with Mark Needham here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You mentioned that you've got a couple other people that you work with. Do you continue to work with Jeff Saltzman?
1: Jeff and I still talk a lot. We haven't we haven't done a project together in quite some time, but I originally met Jeff. He was my attorney when I was working with the band called Flipper up in the Bay Area. I, I remember, <laughs> Flipper. remember Flipper. So um so Jeff and Jeff and I have a relationship that goes back a really long time and, you know, a great guy. And, you know, he's always been a dear friend of mine, but we haven't actually worked on a project in a long time. And Jeff and I actually had a studio up in the Bay Area. So, and I was able to get advice from a really, really great attorney because he was my partner. When I moved to LA after, after the killers, then I brought an I've actually brought an attorney in on retainer. Probably around 2004, and had we had various attorneys on retainer until probably 2013, 2014, maybe 2013, something like that. At that point, we stopped using attorneys. We had, uh, we, we do it all in-house now. We'll consult outside sometimes, but we do we do almost all our own legal work at this point.
0: Just, is is that because you've done so many deals over the years? You you pretty much understand the mechanics of it.
1: We've done so many deals, and when I'm doing a a development deal now, I'm not I don't do the law negotiations anymore. Well, where it? we we have a 360 deal, and we want this, and the band's attorneys come back and forth. It's like here's our deal. If you want to do it, it's a It's a half-page deal memo. It's really simple. And, you know, I just ran into problems with getting to the band's attorney and my attorney involved. I would be finished with the project before the the deal was actually negotiated. Um, Yeah. And... You know, I brought into just a lot of issues with attorneys just taking way too long to get. I mean, I know they have a big workload, but not being able to get a deal, a back-end deal done so I can get paid from the label or not getting sound exchange letters in. So I'm not getting sound exchange royalties on stuff. I'm a royalty mixer. And it's just, it's been a lot better for Andrew Brightman and my manager and I just, just doing the stuff in-house. We've both done You know, we've done this same deal, especially like a mixer royalty deal. I mean, God, I mean, we've done thousands and thousands of these. You know, I mean it's easier to just do it ourselves at this point. When you
0: talk about being a mixer who operates on royalties, you you obviously you get a fee for mixing, but you also get back in royalties off sound exchange, correct?
1: Sound exchange and from the label as well. You know, so yes, I'm a one point mixer.
0: The differences between when you first got to LA in terms of how the business environment is versus now, I would assume it's vastly different.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's a whole different landscape. The labels were still were still a really important part of the business, and uh, we you know still had really big A and R staffs and for developing bands. Obviously, that's changed a lot. You know, I mean, so much more of that development is done prior to the band getting signed now, and, and the labels have shifted their focus more toward research. Who is who on their own? Has had the initiative to take their, their their little song they recorded in their bedroom and brought it up to a level where kids around the world are paying attention uh, you know it's it's a it's a different development process but you know i mean there are a lot of similarities but you know you still have to go through that process and it's a way to seeing how far someone can take something on their own now as a gives you makes it sometimes easier to judge How committed the band is, and Mm -hmm. how much initiative they are. Because, I mean, the '90s or 2000, you'd sign a band, and sometimes you'd you would find out a year in that God, they really don't have one. You know, they don't want to work that hard. I mean, being a rock star is hard work. You know, you might have a you know eighty ninety hour weeks. This is like being a you know if you're out on tour and you're doing interviews and you're up at you know you you finish your show at two in the morning and. You load out, you're in a bus or a van, and you have to wake up at six in the morning to do an interview. You know, start doing phone interviews and with Australia or the UK, and you know you're trying to promote something. It's a, it's, it's a really hard job, and that's I can see how much initiative a band has, or I can be I can get a some kind of a accurate judgment of how much initiative they have just by looking at what they've done online that's
0: interesting so you kind of have a, a sensibility about you i'm sure where you can listen see what they've done talk to them and probably go these guys aren't going to stick with us for the long term this might not be worth it
1: hopefully i mean i'm not always right on that i mean i know what music i like it's you know i'm have a lot better at judging people's character than i was 10 years ago and considerably better than i was 20 years ago but I mean, that's such an important of that de- important part of that development process is just to just being really have an idea who they who they what who they are and their identity, and um, just in, in artwork and the music and production tech you know pre production goals and do they have some sensibility about who they are as an artist? Um, I mean, I think that's incredibly important. If they're too precious about that and are not going to be open to looking at other uh, other. Uh, other concepts on how to get their music out, then that's a red flag as well. Uh, so there's a lot of things you have to kind of watch engage, and gauge, and it's still like spinning a roulette wheel. When Eric and I first met Chris Isaac, they were playing at the punk club Mabuhay on Broadway. Oh yeah, and the band was dead set against reverb on anything. Like they were all completely, like everything was really dry. You know, the journey with Chris working with Eric when we first started, before, even before he got signed, and those first, just the journey on that first record was, you know, all of a sudden it's from where we started to where it ended up was like, what? You know, we ended up in this whole other direction, but it was kind of a journey that we made together. and. And, you know, it worked out. It became kind of Chris's sound.
0: It's funny to hear you even say that, to even think of the tones on, on the more successful, the the widely known record, is vastly different than this.
1: Yeah, you know, but, but in that case, it was uh, referring to what we were talking about earlier with trying to gauge bands. I mean, Chris was a guy who definitely had really strong ideas about who he wanted to be and where he wanted to go as a professional musician, but he was also open to to trying other things and seeing where you know where that the input from me and Eric and just working in the studio and seeing how things worked on the songs and you know it was kind of a mutual journey together i think and it was definitely kind of polar opposite to where we started but it ended up sort of being it's you know his you know he definitely came up with a signature sound that has followed him throughout his career but he was open enough to take that journey, which was good. I mean, he had he definitely had a goal in mind, but he was open enough to to also work and and just see where the thing went.
0: When you're developing a band, do you discuss with them what the long term is once they've you know once they kind of leave the nest, so to speak? Like, where do they see themselves down the road?
1: Well, I mean, that's always part of the discussion. Just you know, does you know is their goal to be an indie band and sell 30,000 copies that's fine that's probably not not with my involvement but i mean that that's there's certainly a lot of great bands that do that that i really admire and the work i'm that we're doing i'm trying to hopefully reach and influence more people than that um Mm -hmm. so so that's you know one thing that i look at with band development uh you know it's just just a lot of things and trying to just to to have discussions with with somebody and you know maybe in a in a couple of weeks' time trying to figure out do they have what it takes you know i don't I don't know it's a I kind of go with my gut on it
0: from uh, a workflow perspective these days uh you're from what I understand you're primarily in the box guy is that correct?
1: I'm completely in the box now yeah for for a while I switched two thousand five I got rid of my console and was kind of half in the box, half out. And over a seven, eight year period, I started getting, you know, more and more in the box until, you know, probably four or five years ago, I think we switched completely in the box. I could put up this Pultec and my real Poltec, and it might not be exactly the same, but I've had maybe four or five Poltecs. None of them sounded the same either, but if I can... (laughs) You know it's old tube gear but if i can if i can find a, you know if i could find a plug that was like well yeah i can put this on the kick it sounds the same then that made the decision pretty easy for me also the the workflow has changed so much from the 90s or even early 2000s where you need to be able to get out a lot of mixes and be able to switch back and forth and pretty rapidly and i just can't do that on a console we might mix three, 400 plus songs a year and trying to switch, switch back and forth on the recall on a console. is just, you'd lose two, an hour and a half, two hours every time you have to switch songs. I couldn't do it.
0: So sonically there was, there was nothing getting in your way there from moving to an in the box setup.
1: Not really. I mean, I, I still really, you know, I love the sound of, I, I did my 25, 30 years of analog consoles and analog tape machines. And, there was really great things about that. There was also a lot of limitations with that on, on what I could do in editing. I mean, some of the things, you know, some of the edits that I would do on analog where we're making loops and trying to semi-quantize a, a drum part and analog tape where you're, you're trimming out little sixteenths of an inch of before a snare drum and... You know, assembling a whole piece and then transferring that from 124, you know, taking those four bars and going 124 track to another and then cutting all that together just to hear how a verse, you know, I mean, it might be three hours till you heard if the verse worked or if you liked it. Um, (laughs) Now it's, you know, there's. Artistic, I can keep the flow going a lot faster now. I mean, there's there's pluses and minuses with both, but to deny that this is the world that we're we live in, it's it's crazy. I think. So, I yeah. mean, I, I've made I've made really good records on all kinds of gear, so the gear doesn't make a great song, you know. Uh, I have people ask, you know. Like speaking in conferences and stuff, who we are talking about the analog sound from the '60s and then the, the just the sound of recording on tape in the '60s and it's like that wasn't really all that was going on, you know. I mean, there was the consoles and there were just the limitations in gear that we that, that was available in the '60s and '70s influenced a lot, but the the bigger influence was rock music was just so was yeah it was so young and when they first came out with stereo and like, wow, we can pan something to the left and something else. Right. You know, (laughs) what a, what a cool effect. And, you know, just, uh, you know, drugs had really come in, in the youth culture at that point. And it was still, but it was still young and people were happy. But And there was, you know, the Vietnam War and all the protest And so, you know, there was just all these other things that were influencing the music and the songs. And to me that, you know, the song so was so much more important than what you're recording it on. We're not that influential at being on this side of the console. I mean, you got to have just a great song. I mean, we certainly help find ways to do it and make it better and cooler and get the vibe across. But whether I'm doing that on... Pro Tools or on a 24-track tape recorder, it, that's not that big of a deal to me.
0: When you mix, do you generally do unattended mixes or do you have people join you many times?
1: I mean, I like to have people come by. I, I get lonesome here. But <laughs> but uh, budgets being what they are now, especially on labels, and also this has become so much more of a worldwide business. Labels don't generally fly the band in they don't want to spend the money to have a band come put a band up in a hotel so they, they might come in you know i might have a band that comes one guy comes in for the end of a end of a project and just makes tweaks but i mean so much of my work is worldwide now it's you know it's just uh, the process has changed but i you know i'm really good at being able to work over email and and phone and you know phone notes and I can stream the output of the console if we want to, you know, if the band really wants to hear this verse, here's three or four different options and, you know, real time, here's what it sounds like with the guitars this way. Here's what it sounds like with them this way. Uh, I mean, I can stream the board real time and do that with everybody on either Skype or video or, you know.
0: That's great. And plus (laughs) I'm just going to add one extra part to that is people may want to come over, but the traffic probably (laughs) makes them go, that's okay yeah just I mean, send it's, it to it, me. it's funny actually
1: I mean actually bands in LA don't bother coming over a lot of times it's like they would rather just, just send me the mix they don't want to drive over but um, <laughs> I, I do have some people who come over for all the mixes and you know I've just been working on this solo al- album with Lindsay at you know I mean trying to work on Lindsay's record if we were, we were doing it all over email would be difficult because he really you know he again he doesn't really have the box at all. You know, let's let's have the vocal on the right and the sneer drum on the left. And let's try, you know, so it's 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 us experimenting back and forth, going out to his car and listening to stuff. So I, also it's nice to have somebody come by. It depends on the client, but I, I think most younger clients are just used to working over the internet.
0: Well, and it's it must be fascinating for you. I mean, you've got a wealth of experience, and obviously Lindsay has a ton of experience as well. So to come and get that kind of other person to bounce ideas off of and try different things, he comes at it from, uh, like I say, from years of experience.
1: Yeah, you you get a little more interact. You know, the uh, interaction between individuals when everybody's in the room. Um, mm-hmm. There's good points for me being able to work by myself, though. It's like, can I, you know, I might work go through nine projects in a day. And I get I'm working on something. It's like I feel like I feel like I'm getting stuck on something. I just stop and go to another project or. I, I get an emergency email. We got to have these parts, or we have to have this. You know, which happens constantly now. I can, or I get bands to come back a year and a half later. Release dates sometimes, you know, get really drawn out these days. And I, I just had one come in this morning. We still haven't mastered this, and. We just want to swap the relationship between the acoustic guitars and the cymbals. And I I can do that and I can stop what I'm doing, pull that up, make that change in 10 minutes and get it back out. So it's convenient for the clients, I think, as well.
0: Well, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you a couple uh, bigger picture questions uh, to inspire others. Let's say that one wants to be a Mark Needham. Well, I mean, there's only one Mark, of course, but let's say, (laughs) let's say they they, they might
1: want to rethink that.
0: They might want to reconsider their options. (laughs) Um, What if they want to mix six days a week, you know, like you have, and obviously you've taken years to develop your career, but what are some of the, the artistic and the business pieces of advice you could offer to those wanting that?
1: If you don't play an instrument, you should, I think that's really important as you play, at least have an understanding of music and a good sense of rhythm and be able to discuss sections of songs in an intelligent manner and chord changes, that kind of stuff. I think I mean, I think that's super important. and I see some people who don't have that background, and I find it it that's gonna put a ceiling on how far they can go especially if your communication with other musicians you know if you're just starting out and you want to be me or somebody like me i give the same advice usually which is just go out and find bands and start recording them Uh, you know again bands talking to other bands are one of probably the best advertising you can get find a radio station that's playing bands you want to work on and they'll usually have locals only shows see who those bands are go out and see them live talk, go up and talk to them after the show's done i love what you guys are doing i'm a you know i'm a great recording engineer producer you know even though you don't have any credits you know i'll wear, i'm going to work with you guys really cheap or for free and you know we could have some kind of a back-end deal and you know have a have you know come up with a half page really simple deal that's that's not complicated you know if this happens I get this you know you got I won't get kicked to the wayside and just start recording bands start recording mixing and, and getting as much work out there as you can there's this is definitely one of those professions where the 10,000 hour rule I think it's very important you know, the more you've done it and the more chances you can take. If you're putting a plug in or using a piece of gear, really find out what... Here's the extremes, you know, with the compressor up, everything down. And, you know, you just have to do it a lot and really push push all those envelopes. It's the same as a really good session guitar player who knows, like, he might have a pedal board with 50 pedals on it. And he hears, hears the song and knows, oh this, 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 and turn the app and it needs to be this guitar, you have to get, for mixing and recording, you have to get that familiar with all the different gear that you have to be able to, I hear a sound in my head and I know exactly how to do it with these five plugins in this, you know, in this order and with these settings, I can, you know, I can hear a sound and go, oh, I can do it like this. Mm. But, and I, but I think that only comes with experience.
0: Now, this is a little trickier question, same concept, you know, uh, what is your advice? But earlier you mentioned some peers of yours who let the labels dictate to them, you know, the work and then the work dries up. So what if you're somebody who's been at it for a number of years and all of a sudden the work is kind of dried up, but you want to continue what, if that happened to you, what would you do?
1: It's happened to me several times in my career. You know, I mean, Again, that's why I said earlier. That's one of the reasons we do artist development is that I can try to step outside who people think I am, and I hear a band. I think this sounds good, and I have a vision for what it could be, and and see if I can make that a hit. I mean, again, I don't win with all of them. I win with I won with a few of them, but I think that it allows me to uh, time to be able to get in and experiment a little bit and not get stuck in a box. And it also allows me to help hopefully. Sh- shape where my career is heading i mean you know again that's why i change i'll change up how i how i mix drums bass guitar you know sometimes i'll just change up the whole thing i want i'm not going to do i'm not going to do these drum buses with this parallel compression i'm not going to do this in in my stereo bus chain i'm not going to do it anymore i'm i just switch to something completely different just because i i you know I, i feel myself getting in that rut and just I think you just have to be careful about getting in a rut and just being that same mm. guy, you know?
0: Gotta keep it fresh. Yeah. I mean
1: that's I mean that, that's hopefully go. I wanna just keep doing this till I die. I wouldn't know what else to do because I know, like I said, I'd never had another job, so I'd be screwed. <laughs> yeah. You're truly all in. Yeah. Well, that's kind of where I've that's kind of where I threw myself when I was sixteen.
0: Mark, thank you so much, man, for taking time to talk to me. I know you're busy and uh I've been really wanting to talk to you for a long time. So it's a pleasure to speak with you. And I hope to uh, catch up with you in the future in person. Uh, Next time I'm in LA, I'll I'll try to make time to to hunt you down.
1: Yeah, I'd love to have you come by. Thanks for having me on the show. I mean, this is just always fun. And uh, you know, if you're if you're in LA or I uh, you know, we still the house in Champions, just come up up in the Bay Area, I'll give you a ring up there as well. But if you're in LA, you should come come by the studio. It'd be great. I'd love to have you by.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, there's so many people that I, I now know in LA that I feel like when I come down I have to now make a list and go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we got to call this person, this person, this person, this person. And uh, so and they all, they all, they do all do.
1: live in different sections of L.A. And it's like, <laughs> oh, well, this, would be, this would be three days of driving just to get around to see them all. You know, it's,
0: That's okay. It's worth it to, to see people in
1: person. Yeah.
0: Well, fantastic, Mark. Uh, thanks again. Great to speak with you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in person in the future. And uh, have a great weekend.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: All right. Take care. Mark Needham. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Another great one down. Thanks for listening. Hey, be sure and stop by our sponsors, Lawton Audio, Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, uh, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. They help make the show possible. And of course, the other things that make the show possible are the people we got to thank. Of course, that includes Mr. Cliff Truesdell and uh, Mr. Chuck Smith and Mr. Cole Williams. And, of course, the other thing that makes the whole thing possible is you listening, spreading the word, and following us on social media. I appreciate you coming and spending time with me today. Until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.